I guess if I were to do some kind of survey this evening of uh, people's favourite New Testament letter, then Philippians would probably come out somewhere near the top. Uh, And if you asked people why, well, perhaps off the cuff they would say, because it's such a happy letter. And uh, that is true. The word joy comes six times, and the exhortation to rejoice comes eight times. And yet Paul, the writer, was in chains under house arrest. So this was no superficial jollity. This was the deep contentment that comes through knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason that the letter is full of joy is simply because it is full of Jesus. I read through the four chapters counting the number of references to the Lord Jesus and I counted 58. Now, that's remarkable in such a short letter. Who he is, what he's done, and how we can enjoy a relationship with him. And the shorthand for the good news about Jesus is gospel. And the word gospel comes nine times. Here endeth the word counts. But it's giving us some idea of the content of this letter. And that's why the overall title is called Joy in the Gospel. And the oldest Christian that Paul would be writing to was probably ten years old as a Christian. Many of them would have been Christians for far less than that. And Paul is wanting them to share the contentment and the confidence that he had. Now today, there are some churches who have lost their confidence in the gospel. That is sad. That is serious. And that's where we're beginning this evening in this series, Confidence in the Gospel. It may be that you struggle somewhat with your own personal assurance. It may be that you've had one or two knockbacks as you've tried to invite people to events here where the gospel is being proclaimed. And so we're going to look at three confidence-giving truths this evening. And the first is this. The Christian has a new position. Listen to Jack's story. Jack is 16. He says, I have asked the Lord Jesus recently into my life. But I often find myself living as I always used to. When I hear a rousing talk or we sing tremendous inspiring songs, I feel I could do anything for Jesus. But then I fail. 
and I feel rotten. Am I really a Christian? Well, in verse 1 we read this. To all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi. That is your new position. That is what Paul is telling them. Now, every Christian is a saint. I said, here endeth the word counts. One more. The word saints, and it's always plural. That's interesting, isn't it? Comes 62 times in the New Testament. We have it here, we have it at the end of the letter, we have it at the beginning of the next letter. This is all saints Philippi. You don't have to be canonized to be a saint. You have to be converted. Now, if tonight you came into your usual row and you saw Christian friends around you, you would be perfectly justified in saying, Evening, saints. And I can imagine the typical Yorkshire reaction to that. What, me a saint? You must be joking. And when I tell you that the word saint literally means holy one, you say you are joking. And that's why it's so important to say precisely what Paul says. To all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi. When you become a Christian, you believe in Christ. But that word literally means believe into Christ. Or you believe into union with Christ. And that is your new position. Now Paul fills out the meaning of that in chapter 3. If you turn to that... This little expression, in Christ, becomes one of his favourite expressions. And in chapter 3, he's giving, well, he's doing some kind of spiritual accountancy, if you like. He's uh, adding up those things in which he might have trusted. His pedigree, his attainments. And then he comes down and he adds them all up and he says, they add up to nothing. And he says at the end of verse 8, I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ, though some of those things were perfectly good things. To be an Israelite, to be from the crack tribe, to be able to speak Hebrew, perfectly good things. Why does he call them rubbish? Because they kept him from Jesus. And sometimes even the good things, the best things, can keep us from Jesus. So he says, I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, not a DIY job, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes out from God and is by faith, 
What he's saying is this, there's a great transaction that has taken place. And the Lord Jesus has taken my sin. And now his righteousness is reckoned to me when I believe on him. It's an amazing thing that now God never sees me outside of Christ. He never sees me by by myself. Always my new position in Christ. So near, so very near to God. I cannot near obey, for in the person of his Son, I am as near as he. So dear, so very dear to God, I cannot dear obey, for with the love he loves his Son, such is his love to me. And I would want to say to Jack, you've asked the Lord Jesus into your life, wonderful. But not only is he in you, but you are in him. And that's why Paul puts it like this. I want to be found in him. That's my new address. Wherever you look for me, that's where you'll find me. You're in church this evening, but you're in Christ. You go to your home, but you're in Christ. To school, to uni, workplace, to Tesco's, but you're in Christ. He never sees you outside of his son. Jack's feelings will fluctuate. His position is fixed. Now there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. What confidence that gives us. Then secondly, the Christian has a new partnership. Let me read verses 3 to 5. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul is so grateful for their partnership in the gospel. You'll find a number of references on your sheet. Uh, Please read them through at your leisure. I'm under a three-line whip because of communion, Uh, so you've got to look up some of these references at home. And you will find that they worked together and they contended together for the gospel and the Philippians had cared for him and they'd prayed for him. And they'd shared with him. They'd sent Epaphroditus when he was ill and so on. In other words, it was a team effort. They were all saints and they were all partners. All of them, listen, in all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I was reading the biography of John Stott just this afternoon 
And as a young, very young pastor in this central London church, it was said that he encouraged them to be partners rather than passengers. So I added that to my notes. That's right, isn't it? Partners rather than passengers. Now when Judith and I came into this church, we were so grateful to be offered the Fullwood Partnership as these funny nonconformists. And we felt part of the church. We committed ourselves to certain responsibilities and we came under the pastoral care of the church. And that's great. We're not alone. Either in the CU or in the fellowship of the church. We're not there in isolation, but we're partners together. Now friends, some people confuse two words that are very similar. The words personal and private. Your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ is an intimate, personal relationship. It's you and him. But it was never intended to be private. When you believe into Jesus, you believe into the body of Christ, which is the church. And I've heard people say, oh, I don't need to go to church to be a Christian. If you'd said that in New Testament days, they wouldn't have understood what you were talking about. They never talked about going to church. They talked about being the church. So it's an immense privilege to be partners in the gospel. I don't know whether you listen into other people's conversation on the buses. You can't avoid it on the 120. Uh, Here's an imaginary conversation between a senior member of the church here and a stranger. And the stranger says, what do you do with yourself? I'm in the news business. Really? Yes, I'm a partner. Whereabouts do you work? Well, we've got a branch down at Fullwood, but we've got reps throughout the whole area. But just this area? Oh, no. No, no, we've got mission partners all over the world. Wow, how many are there in the business? Well, I don't really know, but uh, I know 400 or more are having their roles reviewed at the present time. Really? That must be a nice little money earner. Well, not really. You get great job satisfaction. And the retirement prospects are out of this world. (laughs) That's us. That's our privilege. Now, why is it that this partnership is so important? Well, it's not just a matter of sharing the load. Our very partnership validates the gospel. You know, something very powerful happens when Christians meet together and serve together and eat together and relax together. The gospel becomes visible. 
And we shouldn't be surprised at that. Listen to the words of Jesus in John chapter 13. A new commandment I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. All men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Jim Peterson was one of the early workers of the navigators in Brazil. And uh, he recounts his experience there. Um, They had what they called open studies where Christians could bring non-Christian friends. This is what he says. What made the open study so effective? It couldn't have been content, for often the presentations were quite weak. And it wasn't the discussions. My colleague and I had resolved to keep mostly silent. Many times that was painful as we watched the non-Christians massacre our offspring. But I began to hear one comment over and over again from the guests. I've never seen people like this before. They're different from any I've ever been with. Finally, after frequent repetition, the message got through. People were responding in the open studies, not primarily to what they were hearing, but to what they were seeing. They had never seen a group or nucleus of Christians before. Don't hesitate to bring your non-Christian friends into the community of believers. They will come from the competitive spirit of the office, from their regular diet of EastEnders where everybody is at each other's throats. And they come into an atmosphere of acceptance and love and care. That is the evidence that the gospel works. What Leslie Newbegin calls the great apologetic for the gospel, the great evidence that it's real. Now, there are so many ways in which that partnership can be expressed, whether it be in the Christian union or in the church or in both. But let me say this, please don't focus on what you can't do. I'm always doing that. Oh, I could never do that. I couldn't cook a meal for five people, let alone 50 or 100. That's an enormous ministry as far as I'm concerned. Ask yourself, what can I do? And I recall a story in the east end of London, a mission hall, where a lady in a wheelchair was brought into the meetings and the only place you could get her was just inside the door. What could she do? This is what she said. I smiled them in and I smiled them out again. What a ministry! from such a position. So, what can I do? Dedicate it to the Lord and do it for His sake. And you know, the wonderful thing is this, when we do what we can, 
We often find ourselves doing what we thought we never would. Because that's the gracious way in which the Lord takes us on gently. The Christian has a new position, a new partnership, and finally, Andrew's favourite verse, a new perspective, a glorious, God-centred perspective that should fill us with confidence. One of the television programmes that Judith and I regularly watch is Escape to the Country. And I know that's sad. Uh, We're great people watchers. We're not wanting to escape to the country. But you begin to pick up the lingo. And uh, husband and wife will go into a room and the husband will say, this is a beautiful light room. And the wife will say, well, that's because it's got a double aspect. Now, I know now that double aspect is the posh way of saying there's a window at both sides. <laughs> and you can look out in that direction and you can look out in that direction and the light floods in this way and the light floods in this way. Now, verse 6 is a verse with a double aspect. We can look out in two directions and see what God has done and what he promises to do. And we must let the light flood in because it's glorious. So let's see what God has done. Well, Paul says he began a good work in us. We're saved by good works. I really look forward to saying that from this pulpit, you know. Not ours, but God's good work. Now, it's very important that we grasp this, that the good news out there must become the good work in here. What Jesus has done for us in the public arena must become personal. His great objective achievement in history must become my subjective experience in the heart. How does it happen? We hear the good news of the cross and the resurrection. We might hear it once or twice. We might have to hear it hundreds of times. And then the penny drops. And we say, it's for me. And I cast myself upon Jesus as my Saviour and I commit myself to Jesus as my Lord. You're not saved by believing that Jesus died and rose again. That is what the Puritans call a historical faith. You're assenting to the facts. That must become personal. That is the glorious work of the Holy Spirit in the heart. Now the Philippians knew this. That's why we had that reading from Acts chapter 16. If you'd like to turn to that, Acts chapter 16. We have the chain of events 
which brought the gospel to Europe for the first time. This is a real historic occasion. This is the edict. And it starts with a veto. Verse 6. Paul and his companions travelled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. Have you ever heard anything like that? Forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach. Because God had his designs on Europe. A veto quickly followed by a vision, a voice and a voyage. There you have the story. And what happens when they eventually take that voyage and come to Philippi, the capital of Macedonia? Well, they discovered, as we often discover, that God has been working at both ends of the line. So here's the little group of missionaries, Paul, Silas, Timothy, probably Luke. And there's this group of women folk that met down by the riverside on the Sabbath day. Why? In all probability, because they needed ten men to have a Jewish synagogue, and there weren't ten. So the women took the initiative, and they met down by the riverside. And the missionaries and the women met in the purposes of God. And we read in verse 14, The Lord opened the heart of Lydia to respond to Paul's message. That's the good work in the heart. The Lord did it. And then, at your leisure, please read the conversion of the jailer. What a wonderful story that is. God was determined to have a real cross-section in this church, you know. The, the businesswoman with a big house. And this jailer who had been brutalized by his job. And yet within three hours, he's gently bathing the backs of two of his prisoners. It's an incredible story. Well, how did it come about? Well, he'd never seen prisoners like this before. He'd seen prisoners who jumped for joy when they got out of prison. But he hadn't seen prisoners who sang for joy when they got into prison. And with their backs bleeding and midnight, and their feet in the stocks, what made them tick? And then we read, suddenly, I love that, suddenly there was an earthquake. Where did that come from? What a coincidence. And in all the dust and the rubble and the confusion, they cry out, Men, what must, we, must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And he gathered together his family. And there in the middle of the night, Paul opened the word more fully. And they were baptized there and then. Wonderful, wonderful story. Now, my dear friends, what confidence that ought to give us. You don't mind being a link in the chain when you know that God has got hold of the chain. You don't mind talking to somebody that you're not likely ever to see again 
when you know that God will complete the good work. And when you're baking that cake, or you're serving coffee with a smile, or you're cleaning a floor, don't think isolated action, think linking chain. And when you're praying for your unconverted friends and family and sometimes you're so disappointed and frustrated, don't lose heart. They can resist every overture that you might make. But they can't resist the work of God in their circumstances and they certainly can't resist the work of the Spirit of God in their hearts. What confidence! That ought to give us. Let's look outside the other window, which tells us what God will do. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. The day of Christ Jesus is the day when he comes again. That is our glorious hope. And what will that mean for the Christian? We'll be given new bodies. See what Paul says in chapter 3 and verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven And we eagerly await a Saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. We have five senses now, we might have ten senses then. And not only that, there's going to be a new creation with all sin and evil burned out of it, a new heaven and a new earth. And that's ours to enjoy, ours to explore for all eternity. But that's not the focus of our vision. There is a throne. And around the throne are those from every tribe and land and people and nation. And we will know in that moment that our confidence has been justified. And God has kept his promises and God has kept his people. And when the saints go marching in, we will be there. But even that isn't the ultimate gaze that window there is a lamb a lamb as it had been slain those wounds yet visible above in beauty glorified and when I see that lamb I will know that salvation from first to last is due to him And I'll be exploring not merely the wonders of a new creation, but the wonders of his mercy and his grace towards me. And I will discover that eternity is too short to utter all his praise.
and I will see my Saviour. Oh, that will be glory for me when by his grace I shall look on his face. That will be glory. Yes, glory for me. Now, my dear friends, that's what we're looking forward to. And that, it's not a hope-so kind of hope. It's a certain, sure hope. What a confidence-giver that is. But what about now? What is God doing now? He's carrying on the work that he has begun. We might well say, look, if the Christian is righteous in Christ, if when God begins a work in us, he will most certainly complete it, what responsibility have I got? And Paul tells us what that is in chapter 2 and verse 12. He says this, continue to work out your salvation, not to work for it. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. You are to work it out. It's a mathematical term to its logical conclusion in every area of life. And what is the great enabling factor, the great motivating factor? For it is God who is at work in you. He works in, we work out. He works in in order that we might work out our salvation. That's our responsibility. How then should a Christian think about himself? Luther put it like this, the great reformer, I am an imperfect, perfect man. Perfect in Christ, but a work in progress. Assurance is beautiful. It can flip over into arrogance, and arrogance is always ugly. I do my stint on the door once a month, and I'm given a nice big badge to wear, a name badge. One Sunday, I would love to give a badge to everybody. It wouldn't be a name badge. It would be my NYF badge. And that's not National Young Farmers. It's not yet finished. My not yet finished badge. Patent pending. But don't you think it would be a good thing if one Sunday we all wore that badge just to remind us that we're not yet finished and we've come from different backgrounds and different experiences and we're at different stages and we don't know what people have gone through in the previous week and it behoves us, we who are thrust together in this gospel partnership to be gentle and forbearing one with another. Maybe there's somebody here who's only too conscious that they're 
not yet finished. It may be that you've been overcome in this past weeks with some besetting sin and you fall again and again into that sin. And tonight you feel wretched and you're even wondering whether you should come to the Lord's table. I've been in that position. The thing that helped me was a little incident in the life of John Duncan. John Duncan, 18th century missionary to the Jews, greatly used of God. And then in the second half of his life, he became professor of oriental languages in Edinburgh, New College. Affectionately known as Rabbi Duncan, a man of great learning. And he was helping once at the communion season in Scotland and people were coming and they were receiving the bread and the wine. And he saw a lady remaining in her seat, gently sobbing to herself. And in the end, he took the plate with the bread on and he went down to her and he said, Tack it, woman, it's for sinners. Tack it, woman, it's for sinners. As we gather around this table this evening, we gather as the not yet finished people of God, but absolutely confident that one day we will wait. Let's pray.